HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with, like, paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Carol Pack is the founder of America's first and perhaps only canned craft makali maku. Maku comes in a variety of flavors, and all are so elegantly fizzy, cloudy, and low in ABV, all buzzwords we've kind of grown to seek out when enjoying a craft beverage. Makali might be our next term beverage, which is what I'm um, hoping to find with Carol today. But um, where do you begin introducing a beverage with ancient history to a new market? Welcome to the show, Carol. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with what Makali is um, for those who are unfamiliar with it and how you were introduced to it. Okay. Um, so Makali is Korea's oldest known alcohol. Um, it dates back to, people say 2000 BC, some people say even before. Um, but I think if you look at the history of different countries, like beer um, was a na- natural byproduct of necessity. Um, you know, when grain was plentiful, malt, barley, and... Um, other countries adapted a similar beverage. So like in the UK, they used uh, ciders to make hard cider because they didn't have grains. Um, and then Korea, they used um, apple um, rice because that's plentiful in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most Koreans who um, come from a somewhat traditional Korean family uh, know what makgeolli is because Either your grandparents or your parents or your parents' friends are drinking it. And when you go to Korean restaurants or bars, it's always kind of scattered around the, the dinner table. And I, I also go back and forth um, from here to Korea, and I see it a lot. The people drink it everywhere in Korea. So 
Yeah, it's in a signature PET 750 milliliter bottle and you can't really miss it because it looks like nothing else. It's not a glass bottle, it's not in a can, and it's also white. So it's, you know, I guess Nagori Sake is, is that, but um, before I ever knew what Nagori Sake was, I always knew what Magui was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you say that you saw your parents and your grandparents drinking it, and can you talk about, like, some of your early associations with the drink? Like, is it very sweet? Is it, um, like, what is kind of the, the vibe when you're drinking Makgeolli? Yeah, so I never drank it with my parents, um, but I started to drink it with my friends, and... I just knew that it was a less popular drink. Um, We would always kind of drink soju with my friends, and I always wondered why we didn't drink more makgeolli because it tasted, to me, much better than soju. Um, But in Asian culture, it's kind of like group drinking, so you're either getting... Even the beers, it comes in sharing sizes. Um, So you're kind of ordering as a group. So if everyone else wants soju or beer or something else... um, you know, the, the packaging of a makgeolli is a 750 milliliter bottle and it's too much for one person to consume al- alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really the only time I would drink makgeolli is there's a tradition in Korea where you drink makgeolli and eat pajan when it rains. And so, oh. uh, like, I would have select friends who don't... They like to enjoy the taste of their food and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they would always suggest, oh, let's go get makgeolli today because mm-hmm. it's raining. Every time it rains, that's such a sweet yeah kind of tradition to yeah. To um, so yeah, not only does it come in big, hard to share bottles, but it's also usually sweetened and um, comes in many flavors like peach and you know grape or whatever, right? So can you talk about why um, people are more resistant to drinking that when it comes or like choosing that or you know like a soju? Uh huh. Um, Actually, I wasn't introduced to the other flavors of makgeolli um, mm. until pretty recently. Um, even in Korea, it's, it's kind of like beer where there's a large range. So it's usually just that one traditional rice flavor, but it could be different um, levels of alcohol, different amounts of sweetness, dryness. There's a really fundamental ingredient called nuruk, which is like a kind of like kombucha scoby. Um, it's a live culture um, natural product of Korea and it has a very funky earthy flavor kind of what you get from natural wine mm-hmm. so there, depending on what kind of nerd you use either a, white, a wheat based or a rice based um, and how much of it you use it really changes the flavor of makgeolli as well mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's typically just one flavor but um, different styles and then um Sorry, I forgot your second question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's actually get into um, like the history of makgeolli. So um, can you explain how it was kind of like a farmer's alcohol mm-hmm. and um, kind of like the current revival today and how there's more interesting craft? Yeah. Um, I think it was, you know, because um, back in the day, everyone were farmers, right? No matter what country, um, that was how you live and survive and you cultivate um, by planting and farming. And um, I think it was natural. Maybe we, we got the idea from like a neighboring country, but who people just started to brew. Um, and I think when meals were scarce, um, it was cheaper to drink alcohol. 
And because it's made from rice and it's um, coarsely filtered and there's rice sediment, it was used as a substitute for meals. It was very refreshing. Um, it helped you through like the the labor. Um, so and it was also a, a social thing to like bring people together and at break time, people would just kind kind of gather around and drink that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't only for the farmers. It was for the normal people. It was for the royals and the kings. Um, but um, in Korea, it's segregated into like Wonju and Takju and Cheongju. And when you let the rice settle, um, the bottom was kind of for the commoner or the lay people, mm -hmm. and the, the top, the clear part, um, which was more rare, that was um, for like the richer people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And does the clear spirit differ from soju? That's completely different. Yes. Okay. So if you distill the the clear part, which I believe is called Cheongju, uh, it becomes soju. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. And so um, in the 80s, and this happens across Asia, not just in Korea, but there is this kind of flux, influx of Western culture mm -hmm. and Western tastes. And so there kind of was this, um, I guess, pushback or decreased interest in Asian spirits. Right. And so can you talk about what caused the reintroduction of Asian spirits or the interest in it yeah. recently? Um, well, before that, I think during the, the Korean War, um, there was a sh shortage of rice. So the Korean government hmm. placed a ban on um, people making alcohol with rice. Hmm. So that's when makgeolli became um, substituted with other kinds of grains, um, potatoes, corn, and I think the quality of the drink fell, and I'm not sure when it became, but um, traditionally you steam rice and you add nuruk and you ferment it with nuruk to make makgeolli, but nowadays the commercial products, it's made with either rice flour, rice flavorings, mm -hmm. raw rice, um, and, and there became kind of like common knowledge that makgeolli is the hangover drink, so it has a stigma of being the poor people's drink, uh, the farmer's drink, um, the old people's drink, and kind of the hangover drink. Mm. So, and that's because of like the, the fillers? or That's, that's what I'm guessing. Okay. Um, I also think people never really just drink makgeolli. It's mm. kind of like the topper at the end when you're drinking too much of something else and then you kind of change to something lighter. Mm -hmm. And then like you end, end with that and that you're, you're just kind of... Wherever the stigma came from, it just kind of confirmed, like, oh, yeah, it does give me a hangover. Mm -hmm. um, so because uh, there was also no innovation done over time, um, it's kind of like if craft beer never happened here. Like, who knows what would, what would happen with the state of beer now? Yeah. Um, like, most of the breweries in Korea, it's kind of been passed down, like, generation to generation, and it's always kind of the son who is doing the same exact thing that his parents or grandparents have done and doesn't really care uh, to innovate or change either the packaging or the taste uh, mm. and keep up with the trends. So I think while the older people still drink it, the younger people, um, you know, it was never like remade for their times. And then they also had this introduction of all these other drinks. So it was kind of like the culmination of two. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like Korea, especially South Korea, um, because it's grown so quickly, 
um, as a country, like after the Korean War and like where it is now. It's a very like, sophisticated company. I mean, <laughs> uh, country and you know pretty rich, high GDP. Um, so I think Koreans now always try to mimic whatever's happening in um, in like the U.S. or mm. the, the Western counterparts of the world, and that's what's kind of like cool. That's mm-hmm. what they aspire to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, something I can't figure out is why, like, soju has that staying power. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, you're saying younger brewers in Korea are kind of mimicking what's going on in the U.S. And, like, are they mimicking, like, the craft approach to makgeolli? And so they're kind of reinventing, um, like, that process? Or um, oh, Okay, so I actually didn't address that part. I was just saying that there's a lot of imports now. Mm. Um, so people drink. They have all these alternatives now, whereas a long time ago, it was just like whatever was in the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a craft, there was a resurgence of Makali, I think for several reasons. Um, mostly because I think it was a dying industry and the government wanted to put a big push behind it. Hmm. So they put a lot of financial incentives for Makali breweries. Um, they decreased the taxes, they sponsored a bunch of like celebrities to push it. Um, kind of like this is our alcohol um this is healthy for you because it has all these um Mm. uh, like lactobacillus and it's good for your gut and it's good for your skin and um that helped i guess like bring it back a little bit um and i also think like innovators were starting to notice like oh there's only these large commercial brands like can i go back and bring Makgeolli to its roots and like reintroduce this drink as like this beautiful product that's like has so much history and tradition behind it mm-hmm. um, and so you know it's people who their parents do not just like hand down um, Makgeolli recipe and brewery to them they learned it on their own they experimented um, they, they built their own facilities and brands and um, now there's craft makgeolli bars kind of throughout the country um and it's it's slowly growing every year but i i don't know too much because there's no data there's no numbers and it's really anecdotal just by like because i go to korea twice a year and i just look around and i talk to people and owners and um it's kind of from what they tell me that they see a growing interest Mm -hmm. yeah so would you consider yourself as part of this new wave um, I think so, but I I don't think that um, what I'm doing here in the U.S. will impact what's going mm-hmm. on in Korea. Um, I was more inspired from what was going on in Korea mm-hmm. and thought like, oh, maybe I could do that, but in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. I I found myself missing the, the makgeollis that I was drinking in Korea and I couldn't find it in the U.S., mm-hmm. And actually, um, what's out in the market now is kind of a second iteration of Maku. The first one we were brewing locally, and it tasted a little bit more like traditional Makgeolli because it had a strong Nurek flavor, mm-hmm. and it wasn't fully pasteurized, and it was super handmade. Um, but there were so many issues. Like, no one knows what they're doing here. It was hard to find a scalable brewery. Um, I couldn't afford or had the like time um, to build my own. Mm-hmm. And so now we went back to Korea to partner with a larger makgeolli brewery and 
I just kind of worked with them to tweak a recipe that was middle ground between like a commercial makgeolli and a traditional makgeolli because mm-hmm. I also wanted a taste that was very accessible and approachable for someone who's, who's never had it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back. So we were just talking about the maku process. So let's get into that. Um, how, what was your first batch like? Did you make it at home? Um, yes. So at first I went um, to Korea before before starting maku and I visited a bunch of makgeolli breweries the larger ones the smaller ones so I had a, a range of kind of like the techniques the possible ways to mm-hmm. make makgeolli um, there was the, the real traditional way where you steam rice and you ferment it um, and then there was kind of like a cheating way which was like using rice flour um, or using like raw rice so just to get a feel for all three, I've, I've tried all, all three. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, could you explain how the raw rice or the rice flour is cheating and like how, what kind of process you bypass? Um, well, you're not actually steaming the rice. So um, rice flour, you're kind of like, it's kind of like a, the Betty Crocker cake mix mm-hmm. versus like making your own, own cake. Um, from scratch Mm -hmm. so you just get the rice flour and you mix it with water Mm. and then you add like nurek and like a lot of ferment and and with water Um, and then with raw rice um, you also skip the steaming of the rice but um, the reason you steam rice is so um, the the, like uh, I don't know this is like I haven't brewed for so long that I forgot but you're kind of softening the the outside of the rice so you can get like everything inside of the rice Mm -hmm. like the enzymes and everything to break down Um, the raw rice you don't steam it you're just using enzymes and like like really strong um, I guess enzymes to like break down the rice Um, so it's kind of the same um, but it's kind of like using science to speed things up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can taste the difference. It's, it just tastes like not as deep of a flavor. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think in the most general terms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still know the name of every culture now. I forgot everything. Um, so... Yeah, so then you tried the three processes and you determined which oh. to be the best. Well, well, none of them were working for me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I asked someone who brews other things and 
try to experiment with him and had him do it on his own and he couldn't get anywhere either. Mm-hmm. So then we, um, I actually didn't ask my mom, um, but one day she was like, oh, do you want me to brew, brew a batch for you? And I was like, sure. Um, and we lived separately at the time. So I went home one day and she was like, oh, this is the makgeolli I made. Do you want to try it? And I tried it and it was so good. And I was like, okay, mom, like this is going to be our recipe. So from then on, um, I did about 10 to 15 batches with her, um, just trying to tweak. Um, I wanted to try different nurics, different rice, uh, different ratios of water, because what you made was good, but I just wanted to compare, like different recipes. Mm-hmm. And then we had a really solid recipe, but then looking for a brewery to scale that recipe was impossible mm-hmm. because um, making makgeolli is kind of a hybrid of, makgeolli at least, is a hybrid of like what you need in a beer brewery and a sake brewery. Like you need something to steam large amounts of rice mm-hmm. and then you're brewing with all the rice inside. Um, and, and just transferring all that rice from one vessel to another. Um, there was just no brewery that could handle that Hmm. and then the sake breweries they didn't have um like anything to carbonate the maku um they didn't have the right filtering equipment they didn't have the right canning or packaging equipment they didn't have pasteurizing equipment so i tried to take the recipe to at least 20 breweries um and all of them were suggesting oh, if you could tweak the recipe in this way, maybe we could do it. Mm-hmm. And if you tried to tweak it in this way. So, you know, some of some of them suggested us go back to rice flour. Some suggested, you know, this and this. Um, and even steaming rice, that's the traditional way. But some were like, if you cook the rice, maybe we can make it work. Mm-hmm. So then um, we went back and tried maybe a dozen or so more times to make that kind of recipe. And... It just tasted really off compared to what we initially had. Mm-hmm. Is that cooking like boiling rice versus steaming it? Or? Right. Or, okay. or using, so we tried uh, boiling rice, we tried a pressurized cooker, we used mm-hmm. a rice cooker, mm-hmm. we used um, like steaming in different methods too um, because it all requires like different amounts of water. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, eventually we decided to just go with the original recipe and then figure out everything after the liquid after so like Hmm. um the sake breweries the techniques are pretty similar to making a nukori sake um except sake uses koji opposed to uh the nuruk and we after sake is made it's also not diluted down so we were like okay we could work with that but then we had a lot of difficulty finding a sake brewery because Koji, I mean, Koji does not have any wild cultures in it, mm-hmm. but Nurik does. Mm-hmm. Anything large, any large brewery, they don't want any kind of cross-contamination. So finding a brewery was like a year-long process. Um, but eventually we were able to find a brewery that was able to make the liquid for us. And then I would drive up to Maine uh, every time we brewed a batch and we would just um, manually strain the liquid um, put it put uh, it in filler guns and can the liquid mm-hmm. we would 
stick the label on with our hands. Uh, we would steam it. And then we would dunk it in like a hot bath to pasteurize it. Mm. And then we would palletize it all manually. So I knew it wasn't like a scalable process, but I wanted to at least put something in the market. Because even I was trying to gauge, I was trying to front load a lot of like, oh, well, people buy from us. But it's a, it's a different mindset when you're putting something out in like a glass with like a tape on it mm. versus an actual like quote unquote product. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many times, not only from like alcohol brands or beverage brands, but also food products where, oh, something can taste so good in your kitchen, but if you scale it, it's, com- it's completely different. Right. So I didn't want to blindly test and retest recipes when it was going to taste so different when it was scaled up. Mm-hmm. But that actually didn't turn out to be um, the, what happened. It, it tasted exactly like what it was mm-hmm. like in the kitchen. Um, but yeah, the first batch, it, it was totally off. Um, so we had, I want to say 10 to 15,000 cans and we just gave it away. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what went wrong, to be honest. I think it was like a mismeasurement or, um, yeah, but there was almost no sediment. It was pretty dry. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really tasty. Um, that is exactly what I would sell as a rice beer. But then it wasn't maku. Mm-hmm. So we gave that batch away. Then we did a second batch. And the second batch which was much better. But half of it um, got damaged in transportation yeah. to, our, <laughs> to our warehouse in Jersey. So, yeah, it took it took a year and a half to get a product out in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's actually talk about the decision to call it rice beer. Um, why rice beer? Why not, you know, nigori sake-like drink? Like, mm-hmm. how can you talk about the process of deciding um, how to market? Yeah. So I first looked at the imported makales and saw what they were called. And it was a, um, a wine product, mm-hmm. at least in New York. Um and that's kind of like the wines you see in Duane Reed. Um, it's like very cheap stuff. It's not real wine or it's wine with all these added ingredients. And I, I just didn't feel comfortable with having Makali be a wine product. Mm-hmm. But then um, when I submitted my ingredients and my brewing process to the TTB, which is like the regulatory arm of alcohol in the U.S., akin to like, it's kind of like a FDA for food. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, okay, this is actually a rice wine um, slash sake. Hmm. And I was like, okay, like, this isn't a sake, but sure. I understand that there's, like, we're kind of, like, the first people to do this. So we can, like, figure that out later. But there was a couple of challenges with us being a sake. Um, The first one was finding... A facility that had the licenses for um, to brew sake because uh, I wanted to find a brewery in New York after my um, experience in Maine. Just like me driving back and forth to Maine in, in a single day and like bringing people along along with me, it was mm-hmm. crazy. Um, so I wanted to um, find something nearby, but I realized it was really hard to find a brewery um, that had licenses to brew sake. Because you need kind of to be licensed to make both a wine and a beer, at least in Mm. New York. And then secondly, um, 
in New York, you can only sell um, like wine in wine stores. But then all the other makgeolli were in Korean marts because it was a wine product. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to sell wine product alongside a beer and cider and things like that. But, so I would, I would do tastings and I would be in wine stores. Um, but I would see that people were there to buy wine. And it just mm-hmm. kind of felt like, how can I convince them if they're looking for wine for a dinner party to buy something like so far off from what they're looking mm-hmm. for? Um, I really want to be sold in like Whole Foods and I want to be sold in H-Marts. And so I was like, okay, how can I like overcome this hurdle of being a rice wine? And, and on top of that, everyone was calling me a sake. And it was, it was really frustrating because I'm like, I wanted to bring a product from Korea and mm-hmm. I don't want people to think this is sake. Um, so I looked into the definition of beer, um, which is like a fermentable grain or an acceptable alternative um, with or without the addition of hops. Um, so I looked into the definition of acceptable grains and one was rice. And so I kind of wrote back to the TTB saying, hey, we're a fermented rice without hops. So I think we should be a beer. Um, and also, before Mako, I was working at uh, ZX Ventures, which is a um, part of Anheuser-Busch. And my mindset for a year was beer and beer occasions and um, just looking like, oh, it's 6%. It's fermented. It's a social drink. It's a light, easy, casual drink. And all these beer alternatives were similarly like, you know, like hard seltzers, hard ciders, hard sodas, hard kombuchas. It was pretty similar, like fruity flavors, um, sparkling. Um, it's for social events. It's low in ABV. So I just thought it made the most sense to be on those shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they got back to me and said, okay, sure, like you can be a rice beer. Mm-hmm. So... That's where we are now. We still have our challenges because now when I'm selling in a craft beer bar and someone's expecting a beer and they try us, they're like, uh, this is good, but this isn't beer. Mm. So I guess they feel like we're misleading them. Um, so yeah, my whole month month's focus has been, um, you know, do I call ourselves a makgeolli, a makgeolli beer? Mm. Do I keep pushing it as a rice beer? Do I push it as a Korean beer? People also say, like, rice beer is really unappealing because usually um, that's, like, a cheap substitute for, mm. for grains and, uh, like, barley and things like that. So um, that's that's kind of where we are. Like, yeah. I've been doing a lot of focus groups around this recently. Yeah, so kind of what what is a clue or what are you looking for in the market that will kind of give you that push to go with makgeolli or rice beer? Um, cause my whole hypothesis is, um, if someone doesn't know what makgeolli is, they won't be like inclined to try it if it's on a shelf. So at least if it's like a Korean beer, um, they're like, oh, it's from another country. Oh, I'm familiar with like Korean food or Korean music or Korean beauty. Um, you know, they associate it with high quality mm-hmm. from what I've gathered from, like, interviews. Mm-hmm. So, and and if people try maku, um, th- there's a high likelihood 
they like it. Mm-hmm. So for me, whatever it takes for them to want to try it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they'd rather want to try a Korean beer or a Korean rice beer than a makgeolli, which is like, I don't know. I have no idea right. what that is. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying the first batch was like pretty funky and like good. You liked it, but you don't think maybe the market's yet ready for that. So how do you balance like accessibility uh-huh. um, with affordability and like what's being true to makgeolli and what you want it to be? Yeah. Well, I think um, maku is is that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had some parties where a really hardcore diehard muggly lovers will come and I see their face they're like okay this is so whatever mm. um, but for me I wanted to because the current mugglies in the market are good they're very drinkable but people don't understand they don't read the label where it has like 15 ingredients that you don't know I don't know what it is mm-hmm. um, a lot of times you're talking about the ones like in the plastic bottles. exactly okay. all the imported ones mm-hmm. um, and those are like $2 for a bottle yeah. versus like Maku's like $3 a can. Right? Exactly. Okay. Um, and it's half the quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the branding is just not um, going to go anywhere beyond the Korean community mm-hmm. because it's it's tacky. It's very tacky. Um, and, and I think it's pretty affordable right now. I, I tried to price it... Um, akin to like a premium craft beer and that's where we are right now um and so i didn't even think about my own margins i went from this is what i want the price to consumer to be and it worked backwards Mm. um and i was like oh can i make a business with with like my cost of this 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 and um we're we're positive for now (laughs) and and you know i already talked to our brewery and i was like oh if we increase volume will you give us like discounts and they said they would so um yeah i think we are accessible in terms of taste i think we're true to makgeolli in terms of our ingredients and brewing process and um i think i mean i I wouldn't say affordable to like all of america necessarily Mm -hmm. but um if if in the markets that we're currently targeting, uh, I think we're affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying the plastic bottle marketing um, will not make it beyond the Korean community, and um, for people that are unfamiliar with it, it has like like the image of the fruit, um, Korean text. So if you're not Korean, you can't read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about the design of the maku can, which? Um, when my friends and I drank it, we were like, oh, this is like so different and, yeah. you know, not at all what we expected. And what was the inspiration behind that? And mm-hmm. what did you want to convey with that kind of branding? Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew branding would be the most important thing um, because that's why people like will try a new drink mm-hmm. um, from what I know in the industry. So I, I didn't know what I wanted. <laughs> I just, um, I talked to a few designers and I was like, okay, this, this is my challenge. I'm, I'm launching, uh, a, a new category, a new brand. Um, all I know is that I want people to, to want to reach for it on the shelf and I want it to stand out on the shelf. Um, and I want, I want, it's like a premium brand because it's it's going to be high quality products um 
And I, I, I might want the color white in there because I think when people see it in a cup, they get really scared mm. and really turned off. Um, but if the can's opaque, uh, maybe unconsciously, if there's like some, if it's like a white can, uh, then maybe it's kind of like a primer. <laughs> yeah, like you're expecting something milky looking. Yeah. Or, I don't know, just like the whiteness of a can. Um, and it's also not, like, other beer brands, like, I don't think there's any who, like, put themselves in white cans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked with a few designers, but we found one who um, had designed a sake for the American market, a premium sake. And I was like, oh, that's exactly our mission. Um, maybe he can understand. Maybe he understands some of these challenges. Um, so, yeah, his name is Joe Doucette. And he, um, his whole design aesthetic is, is very minimal, clean. Um, so he presented a few different ideas to us. And because Mako's unfiltered, you the rice sediments fall to the bottom and it's even more than like hazy beer um or like a those like ipas like milk uh, hazy ipas so you in in korea the pet bottles it's made so it's like shaken they have these special caps that breathe so you could shake it and it doesn't really explode Mm. so i was like oh i'm kind of scared i don't i don't know if if you shake a can what happens to it because Yes, it happens with the beer, but makgeolli is a little bit different, the texture and the carbonation level, so maybe it won't explode, maybe it will. But we decided to make the label upside down, um, so at least you would turn the label upside huh. down to look at it, and then the rice sediments will fall to the top. Um, so he made a symbol for us, which was like this diagonal stripe, so whether our can was upside down or right side up, it would... our brand like sign would mm-hmm. stay intact yeah. um so yeah our first few cans were upside down um but with this new brewery they they forgot yeah. <laughs> are you gonna bring it back after? it's a really um, great idea we're thinking about it mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm a bit scared because it's also unprecedented and i'm scared that our container of cans will be held at customs and not let in mm. um because we're regulated by the FDA, and they don't have a clear answer for us whether we could bring that in or not. Mm-hmm. Just having the labels upside down. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know if I want to risk that. And and we're also too small to risk that now. Maybe if we have, like, a million dollars lying around, <laughs> right? right. Um, and plenty of inventory, we could do that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. Maybe parts of our label upside down. Or, mm-hmm. like, something like this where it's, like, both right side up mm. and upside down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like you are on kind of the still, you're not yet on the other side. You're, you're kind of presenting a lot of new unprecedented things to the market. And mm-hmm. so what do you think it means for our future of food that you're introducing Makgeolli mm-hmm. um, to an American audience and it's not a niche Asian spirit? Um, well... I don't know. I mean, like, I'm taking a risk and hoping that it will go beyond a niche Asian spirit, um, but it could very well just stay inside the Korean community. Um, but looking around and seeing what other 
uh, founders are creating in the food and beverage space. Um, I think ethnic food and beverage is turning mainstream. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's only because I'm privileged and living in Manhattan and um, we're ahead of most trends. Um, And maybe the rest of, you know, America's not ready for that yet. But at least from what I see, um, people are now, you know, because of social media and... I, I don't know, maybe millennials just don't save now and they like to spend and travel mm. and, um, you know, experience life. They're a lot more open to other cultures and they enjoy it immensely. Or if they can't afford to travel, um, they do it through food and culture. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it is with the changing times and, you know, people are open-minded, like, the world is evolving. Everything's interracial now. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that mm-hmm. my hypothesis where this can enter, um, you know, mainstream uh, holds true. <laughs> and right now, are they only available in New York? So we launched in New York and opened up L.A. And we're just kind of in northern Jersey where it borders New York. Um but we're in talks with um, a distributor to go to San Fran and Las Vegas. And I'm also, um, I have some inquiries from like Michigan and Tennessee. <laughs> so Yeah, so for now, if people are listening to this and want to find Maku at their stores, which, which stores are like a good place to find them? It's very hyper-local. It's mm. kind of smaller bodegas, but up till now, I've been doing sales by myself. So it's just been kind of like knocking on doors and cold calls. So we have a store locator on our website, um, but we just signed with a distributor. Mm. And the reason I did that was because we had commitment from like a large chain that if we were to switch to a distributor that they work with, um, they would start carrying us. And I don't want to reveal that yet because you never know when it Mm -hmm. comes to business. But I'm hoping that in the next few months that um, it'll definitely be... Um, available more widely. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for joining me today, Carol. Thanks for having me. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.